You're listening to Journal Entries, a podcast about philosophy and cognitive science, where researchers open up about the articles they publish. I'm Wesley Buckwalter. In this episode, Igor Grossman talks about his collaborative paper with the Wisdom Task Force called The Science of Wisdom in a Polarized World, Knowns and Unknowns, which was published in Psychological Inquiry in 2020. Igor is an associate professor of psychology and the director of the Wisdom and Research Lab at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada. He also hosts the On Wisdom podcast with Charles Cassidy, discussing the latest empirical science regarding the nature of wisdom. You know, across the cognitive sciences, psychology, education, philosophy, there's been this growing interest in studying wisdom. But sometimes when this happens, there can be a lot of disagreements and talking past each other between researchers about constructs. So it was definitely exciting to talk to Igor about his and his collaborators' efforts to come together and try and build some consensus about wisdom, the conceptual framework, its measurement, and where researchers should go next. The main point of the Size of Wisdom paper is to establish a common position on key features of wisdom as viewed from the psychological perspective. The paper has six sections, and uh, in many ways it was inspired by a paper, a common position of framework that was established in psychology in the 90s after the bell curve was published, where Ulrich Neisser got together a task force uh, by uh, the American Psychological Association of leading intelligence researchers to say what, what is actually the scientific consensus on this intelligence research in contrast to some extent as an antidote to the bell curve so they have multiple sections and so like you know i'll use this as an example uh where we want to have multiple sections in this paper and so basically we start with six sections uh and uh, first we review sort of main conceptualizations of wisdom and uh, here we reviewed sort of survey results because we conducted the largest survey so it's not just like the 15 people that were in the room uh, at the time of the conference, but we also conducted a survey among a much larger group of uh, researchers. And we'll talk about that in a second. And uh, so basically, what is in common across this conceptualization? So that's part one. And uh, the reason we start with that is because we want to establish this kind of common position in order to evaluate all the other aspects of uh, all the other questions in the paper. For instance, the question, the next question was about measurement. Well, measurement depends on what you're measuring. And so you need kind of this composition first. And so in the second section, then we then talk about measurement, testing, limitations of different testing methods. And then we move on to individual differences, a thing that uh, many people are interested in, who is wiser, who is less wise. Uh, so individual differences in processes that are characterized by this common method um, approach and possible reasons for differences in uh, individual differences. And then we continues like with questions about development, uh, cultural differences, group differences, and, uh, and then discuss the major unresolved mysteries of wisdom research, at least from the psychological perspective. When I started doing research on the topic of wisdom, uh, which is more than a decade ago, um, I noticed that there was quite a bit of, you know, everybody's using language in their own way, and they mean different things. And so it's like almost like a Babylonian type of perspective on this. And then you feel like, well, if everybody's talking about different things or they use different terms to mean the same things, it's like in psychology, we describe that as a jingle jangle fallacies. 
uh, then the science cannot really advance any further like because everybody's in their own ecosystem and very happy in there but um, it doesn't really lead to some kind of an advancement and so I thought like I really want to do something about it like kind of get to the common position but uh, what happened at the same time is like you know everybody knows that and nobody's doing anything and it's like okay fine I mean I have my position others others have their positions uh, we can continue this way. But then there was this event uh, last year that really changed my mind. And to some extent, what happened was that um, I was planning to organize a conference in Sri Lanka. And I invited people uh, from philosophy, from psychology, to bring together different perspectives, uh, but also like to really get a diverse range of perspectives from Asia. So that's why I picked Sri Lanka to really get at uh, people from the Asian realm who have their different perspectives on wisdom than we do. And after we finalized the conference setup, literally the week we finished the program, then this horrible Easter bombing attack happened. And so it's like the world's most fatal coordinated uh, terrorist attack in the last decade. Uh, and that's exactly in Colombo where we're supposed to, ta- uh, to have the conference exactly, uh, like, just a month thereafter. And uh, that to some extent sort of changed my perspective on this. I mean, you know, like I started thinking about, well, first of all, kind of sucked. (laughs) Personally, I organized the conference. Of course, we had to cancel it. And what do you do about this? But also, like, what kind of wisdom do we need to really live in a society in which uh, this type of animosities can take place that lead to such uh, deadly tragedies? And uh, the topic of wisdom often comes up when you talk about those topics, uh, when you talk about uh, uncertainty, when you talk about uh, terrorism, when you talk about all sorts of things along the slides. And uh, I really felt motivated on the one hand to do something about it because like, we can all sort of, like, feel, sort of have a philosophical discussion about wisdom, but a like, more actionable discussion on this topic would also be necessary, I think. That was before the pandemic, of course. Um, and now everybody's talking about uncertainty. But at the same time, I was like, well, okay, I guess the next two months, I don't have anything to do because the conference is canceled. I'm canceling everybody's reservations and so on. I was like, well, why don't I just bring people together in Toronto, uh, which is where I live? And uh, so I invited a bunch of people serendipitously because, uh, first of all, the terrorist attack happened. And secondly, I knew that at that moment in that summer last year, there were more people who studied wisdom from a psychological perspective in Toronto, even though they were not professors in Toronto. One of them is a professor in Australia, the other one is in Chicago, but they just spent some time in Toronto before they embarked back on uh, their scientific careers or whatever. And uh, so I knew like, I could just bring them together. And so we had the critical mass. There was just luck and luck that I had time to do that. And of course, the tragedy. So all those two things together. Uh, they brought us to the wisdom task force. And so I just invited people and uh, many agreed. Uh, I didn't anticipate that so many people agreed to participate either remotely, like there were participants from China uh, or in person. And uh, that's how it came together. I anticipate a lot of disagreements like uh, as a start because I do see it. It's like similar to you. I, I do see quite a lot of disagreement uh, in this field, uh, sort of at the intersection of moral psychology, moral philosophy, and uh, uh, sort of like social psychology, personality psychology, and stuff like that. 
but uh, you know, well, they, a lot of people agreed to participate. Um, and uh, even though it's like wisdom scientists, they may be kind of disagreeable, but you know, they at the same time they kind of want to cooperate because it's sort of the mantra of the wise person is not the one who would just say no. They would be willing at least to listen. So there was at least some some interest from that perspective. And then uh, the disagreements that uh, they revealed themselves more when we started to finalize some kind of a common position. So because in addition to the conference, we ended up, my goal was to write this big paper with a lot of co-authors where we would say, okay, so this is how we all jointly agree. And it's not like that this represents position of everybody, that everybody agrees with every single word, every single sentence in this paper, but it's kind of the consensus among us. And working on that consensus turned out to be very hard. So one topic, for instance, was uh, to what extent do you need to be a moral person or show moral action? Can you label something as wise if the person is actually not showing the action? So like is the motivation, for instance, to to do something good enough to label uh, the person who is embracing this motivation a moral person? Or does the person really need to show the action? And then some of us, like I personally disagree with the position that you need to show the action because sometimes you just can't. The circumstances prevent you to do it, from doing it. And others thought that I don't go far enough. And so we had like a lot of back and forth over a month um, on, on this topic. And then another one is about emotions. So with the, some of the reactions that we got, because this was uh, published in Psychological Inquiry, which solicits uh, commentaries and uh, a lot of commentaries that we got like had this idea, but like, yeah, that's great that you're talking about, uh, and we'll go through X, Y, and Z, but you forget the emotions. Because a wise person focuses on the emotions. What's up with that? It's like, well, we're not talking about that. Like emotions can play a role, but they're not neither, neither sufficient nor potentially even necessary as a part of the construct. And maybe it's like an additional process that may facilitate under some circumstances and inhibit wisdom under other circumstances, at least from the psychological perspective. Um, but yeah, so that was the second contentious point, uh, emotions and affective processes, um, intuitions, can you have wise intuitions, uh, and so on. It's interesting about like how do researchers conceptualize wisdom. There are, there are all sorts of different strings uh, that have different historical roots. Some of them are focusing more on uh, cognitive processes and anything that's related to cognitive process, like how do people reflect on challenging dilemmas, often sort of like uh, hypo hypothetical stories uh, that uh, you present to a person and then you record their answer and see in their answer, well, whether they start recognizing limits of their knowledge or show some forms of open-mindedness, consider different viewpoints, blah, blah, blah. And uh, that tradition comes from uh, cognitive psychology, where in the 80s, uh, cognitive psychologists used this type of methods that were then borrowed by um, the initial uh, cognitively oriented wisdom researchers, especially the Berlin group in the 90s, uh, led by Paul Baltus, did that a lot. And there's just a different tradition um, coming from personality and uh, specifically sort of ego development, if you want. And personality psychologists are mostly interested in individual differences. They assume that individual differences quite often are stable. At least they used to assume that, not necessarily anymore. Um, and the way to measure stable things is to give people a questionnaire, for instance. So you give them a list of adjectives um, and uh, ask them to evaluate which adjectives are more like them. 
or you give them a set of statements and ask them to evaluate whether the statement is applicable to them, to what extent do they agree with the statement, and then make an inference based on the scores from this type of questionnaire, whether they're wise or not. And so there's different traditions. On the one hand, you have this more cognitively oriented, reflective processes, often also linked to autobiographical memory, and others are more about the individual differences through questionnaires. And there's another group uh, that completely separate, emerged completely separate from this, and it's more sort of like postmodern approach, narrative approach, I would say, where you really just look at the reflections and narratives of individuals and um, try to categorize maybe individuals in terms of like common themes that you see in the narratives. Often then you focus on the narratives of people who would be nominated by somebody else wise. So those are like the different approaches. And so when we did the survey, the reason we did the survey is because like the approach is very different. Uh, but is there something in common in terms of the underlying structure, in terms of the underlying concepts? And so what we did was I first well, designed a survey. Uh, so several of us, not just me, uh, several of my colleagues. And uh, it was very important for us to have both open-ended questions where we don't constrain uh, the parameter space, the type of sort of responses we can receive, as well as first choice questions. So first choice questions are easier to analyze, as everybody knows, whoever conducted the survey. Uh, but open-ended questions can allow you to capture something that otherwise people would not mention. So for instance, if I would ask you to conceptualize what, what is the definition of wisdom that you use in your research, or how do you measure wisdom in your research? If I just give you a list of five different approaches, then it will potentially not be as satisfactory that if I ask you to write it out. And so we ask people to write it out, and then we send it out to a bunch of mailing lists, so like a psychological community, Society of Personality and Social Psychology, Association for Research and Personality, uh, but also at the intersection of uh, philosophy and psychology, for instance, Moral Science Network and some others, uh, Cognitive Sciences. And a good number of uh, people who claim to study something related to wisdom, because the idea was like, if you study something related to wisdom, have anything to say about this, please fill this out. And uh, some people say, well, I have nothing to say about this, but let me fill it out anyways. Uh, but the majority of the people were actually had something to say about it. And uh, uh, then we looked at the responses. So, by the way, they, they came from all over the world. So there were some responses from South America, some responses from uh, uh, East Asia, uh, some responses from Russia, some responses from Europe, and then, of course, from North America as well. Then we did the content analysis and uh, got to our results and turned out that there was actually more in common among the different positions, even though they use very different methods than uh, even I assumed. I was pretty surprised. We found that the most common characteristics that people described as measuring, but also in conceptualizations, even if they didn't measure them, were uh, moral aspirations on the one hand, sort of like things like prosociality, uh, often things like the compassion, sympathy, and so on. And uh, something that we ended up describing as perspectival metacognition. Now, that sort of like is a complex term, but uh, what we really mean is uh, the ideas that allow you to think more deeply about your knowledge, uh, more deeply about the given situation. And uh, it's metacognition because it's not just a cognitive process like thinking. It's more about like what is guiding your thinking uh, in a given situation. For instance, do you recognize that your knowledge is limited? 
So it's like kind of what philosophers sometimes would describe as intellectual humility. Uh, do you uh, focus on on just your perspective? Do you view it through your through your own eyes, or do you try to consider different viewpoints on a given situation? Let's say you're facing a challenge. How do you um, approach this challenge? What uh, perspectives do you look at it from? Um, do you consider the context? Uh, or do, do you realize that whatever you're doing, whatever the challenge is, or whatever the issue is that you're facing, is uh, taking place in a particular context? So there's not necessarily aspects of cognition per se. It's like uh, this are sort of almost it's like like meta heuristics that guide your cognitive uh, your thinking process. Therefore, they are metacognitive, and um, they're perspectival because they allow you to shift your perspective from what is habitual to you whenever you encounter something difficult to do uh, to um, something that would allow you to get sort of a wider range of perspectives in a given moment. So like imagine you're facing an issue where uh, your partner tells you that she just uh, cheated on you. Uh, and uh, your initial knee-jerk reaction, of course, is uh, that's it, leaving the house. A bit hard to do right now because we're all stuck potentially. Good luck moving out. Uh, I heard that, you know, people are finding the joy in marriages these days. Like, apparently marriages are, again, on the rise. Anyways, uh, so you're facing this dilemma, and uh, your initial knee-jerk reaction may be the one where you would just separate. You don't want you don't want to listen. You don't want to hear anything. You don't want to understand where it's coming from. So this perspectival metacognition was like, okay, hold on a second. What do I know about this situation? What happened here? Where does this person come from? Why uh, is this? If this is new, if this, if there's no, is it just maybe she was just got drunk? Maybe I insulted her? Maybe something else happened? Sort of like starts to inquire about additional possible reasons uh, for the situation. Then how would somebody else look at it? Like, okay, I, I am really upset about it. But um, things happen. I'm not saying to justify infidelity here, uh, but I'm just saying that uh, things happen. And, and so we need to consider how would another person look at, it, at this situation? Um, then what is the context in which it happened? Was it like that we had a conflict and then she went and sort of like, like as a revenge, slept with somebody else? Uh, or he slept with somebody else? I mean, it doesn't have to be one directional. Um, or was it just out of the blue? So all those processes uh, so they ask you to think more deeply uh, about the situation, taking different pieces of information into account. They sort of afford you getting a bigger uh, picture sort of perspective on the issue at hand that you would otherwise not get. And uh, therefore, they would be described as perspectival. The other thing that uh, was very common is this idea of moral aspiration. So basically, and that was a very contentious issue, by the way, because uh, some people uh, did not think that in our definition, we went far enough. Um, so what is moral aspirations? Well, things like, uh, you know, pursuit of truth. Uh, it's actually interesting because uh, that's one that I thought like will not be very high on people's list, but turns out to be very high on people's list. Um, to be honest, but also to pursue their truth. Uh, intellectual humility is maybe facilitating that, but the ideal is 
different from just like the cognitive process. So therefore, this is about moral aspirations, not about metacognition. Uh, other things that would be under this umbrella of moral aspirations may be um, things like uh, just be uh, cooperative with others, uh, cooperative either with your group or cooperative with uh, others in your society, sort of like being oriented towards the common good, so to say even though that's also an opaque term. Turns out if you ask people, and we did that, well, how do you define the common good? Then they end up defining it in terms of the other characteristics, uh, such as prosociality, uh, such as sort of like in-group uh, cooperation within your group, or understanding of some kind of a sense of a shared humanity. Like right now, during the time of the pandemic, it sort of becomes very salient for some people. So we're all in, somehow in this together. It doesn't matter where we are from, we're all suffering through probably kind of similar processes. Well, of course, some of us have it harder, much harder because we have less money than others, so can't afford uh, not staying at home. Uh, so the idea of the shared humanity is another aspect of it. Uh, and uh, and then some kind of general sense of uh, uh, being uh, compassionate towards others. So roughly speaking, when researchers uh, look at this set of processes. The approaches that they take are either the approach of self-report or an observer rating, an observer rating of often open-ended reflections, sort of narratives created by somebody. And then you would have independent raters of those narratives for themes that emerge in the narratives. So those are the typical ways it's measured. And uh, they're not measured very well. So there are two issues. Uh, number one, when you have the self-report issue, uh, self-report measures, where you just ask somebody to indicate, well, how humble are you? Well, you have this dilemma, I call it the Trump effect, where uh, Trump claimed to be the humblest man and that nobody could even understand and comprehend how humble he is. And uh, that's uh, basically what this dilemma is about, like that the person who is scoring high or maybe reporting highest level of humility uh, or highest level of perspective taking may in fact be the person who is unable to consider others' perspectives and recognize that he fails in those domains or unable to show his humility, humility and restraint by claiming that they are very humble. So that's one of the inherent problems with the self-report approach to measuring uh, some of these highly desirable characteristics. Uh, but there are another set of problems, and the problems concern uh, the way how you assess um, characteristics that you don't have a really good grip on in terms of your own image. So you may not know how humble you are. I mean, like, I have hard times. Some people tell me I'm not very humble. Um, okay, that's a good piece of information. But let's say you have nobody who tells you that because you alienated everybody uh, through your humble bragging. Okay, in that situation, uh, you will potentially have hard times coming up with uh, an assessment of yourself. Um, and you may be remembering some situation. Okay, maybe there was this one situation three years ago where I was really, really humble. I'm really proud of it. And uh, the problem is that that situation, even though it's salient in your memory, may not necessarily be the most typical situation for your life. So you may be recalling something that's 
quite atypical. That's what the feature of our memory. So there's a memory bias going on uh, where you uh, may be distorting the reality often in your favor. Uh, and uh, the third one is that if you don't have a clue because you don't have a good grasp of a particular way to evaluate yourself, humility is one example, maybe perspective, are you, are you very good in terms of empathy? I'm not, I don't know, like, am, I, am I very compassionate as a person? Often those things are not easy to evaluate. Um, so what happens if you don't have a good idea about how to evaluate yourself? Maybe even nothing comes to your mind. You have no instances in which this type of behavior could be assessed according to your own understanding, then you will just go with like, okay, how is how would a decent human being evaluate themselves? Oh, that's a good quality. Like hum being humble is good. Okay, so I'm humble. And so like basically the way you go about this is like you uh, you have the issues with the, the Strump effect, you have the issues with memory biases, and you have the issues with social desirability in the absence of anything else. Uh, so you would think that, okay, so the self-report measures suggest just all bad, but here's an issue. It turns out that the open-ended responses where you just like have somebody else rate it are also not without limitations. Um, I've done my fair share of open-ended sort of measure, metrics for measuring wisdom, and the problem there is that um, they're often constrained to laboratory situations. So where you would come, uh, create some kind of hypothetical scenario and you would um, uh, try to ask people like, okay, immerse yourself in this scenario and now imagine this happens to you, you know, infidelity, your partner cheated on you, good luck imagining that. And I'll continue imagining it and now tell me, what do you think? And it's kind of, Okay, sometimes it works, and sometimes it's it's almost like a joke. I mean, it's it's hypothetical. It's not real world. And often the situations in which you really want to assess wisdom that happen to people in their lives are not the situations that you can assess in the lab. So what do you do? You can't, uh, like, you, you have this artificial on the one hand, and you have this kind of self-report dilemmas on the other hand. So one solution that... Uh, we found, and I personally find probably most satisfactory, it's still a compromise because it's not perfect, is you can to some extent have self-report measures, but the idea is not to keep them abstract and not ask people to evaluate themselves, but ask people to report what do they actually do in a given situation. So don't ask them about their wisdom. Ask them about, you have this particular challenge and to what extent did you check for more information in this particular challenging situation? And it turns out if you do that, people are much more likely to... Re well, first of all, they, they can recall a most recent experience. You ask them to recall a most recent experience. And uh, then it's much easier for them to come up with something that makes sense. And they're not tempted to present themselves in the most positive light. Uh, so that would be sort of a hybrid measure where you would contextualize contextualize um, their reporting on their own wisdom or somebody else's wisdom. It doesn't have to be about the given person. Maybe it's an observation of somebody else's behavior. And the trick is that through this contextualizing, you avoid some of the issues, including the memory biases, because when you put it in a concrete context and make this context salient, some of the memory biases uh, turns out uh, also 
uh, diminished to some extent. But again, this is just a hybrid and it doesn't really, uh, there's still some self-report bias. Uh, there's still a desirability bias. It's still on a scale and it doesn't capture all the nuances that you would otherwise get when you ask people just to either reflect or behave in a spontaneous fashion. I have a good friend from Ireland uh, who studies sort of wisdom from a more narrative perspective. And she likes to talk about sort of the big wisdom and the small wisdom. And so the big wisdom is like this, is kind of uh, all or nothing. Uh, that uh, you either are wise or you're foolish. And it's like the wise is like on this pedestal, like sort of like Solomon quality, King Solomon quality type of wisdom. And then forgetting that, of course, that even King Solomon was not a perfect human being. And, and there is no such a thing as a hu perfect human being. So instead of that, instead of this kind of big wisdom, what may be more plausible from the psychological perspective is to look at the small wisdom like the incremental wisdom from one situation to the next. It may accumulate or maybe not accumulate. I like that distinction. And um, what we try to make a point about in this section on individual differences is that in order to really get at the question of individual differences, you need to measure people multiple times and then see if there is a certain profile across multiple situations. Because look, obviously, uh, the extent to which you show intellectual humility may vary from one situation to the next. Uh, but it's more about like this kind of, do you on average show more of it in different situations in your lives? Or are you more of a person who shows it maybe in one situation? And in that situation, you're always humble. You're always inquisitive of your knowledge. You always seek more information. And in all other situations, like I'm fine. I don't care. Don't even, don't even come with those type of additional information. Don't doubt me. Like I will be very uncomfortable about it. And so, like, to really get at the question of intellectual community, to get at the individual differences in that, or any other constructs, perspective, take empathy, um, sort of kind of awareness of the context, open-mindedness about your knowledge, appreciation of diversity of opinions, all this kind of metacognitive process, you really need to measure people across multiple uh, time points. Ideally, these time points would also get at different situations in which uh, people find themselves in these time points. And what we find is that uh, if you do that, and only a few studies have done that, uh, that uh, there is both a little bit of stability, and this stability is not much lower than actually established individual differences in personality uh, when they're measured in the same way. So there is a stable component. Uh, but also substantial variability from one situation to the next. Uh, and uh, that's great because if there is substantial variability, you can potentially capitalize on it and uh, cultivate it uh, through some maybe habitual practices, as Aristotle would have said, or uh, situational nudges, as some social psychologists and ec economists like to say, even though I kind of doubt about the nudges thing. I think you really need to have a tendency willingness to engage in certain practices and uh, consciously uh, uh, cultivate them uh, in order to really get the result. Uh, but ultimately, it's both. It's both the situation and the uh, what some people call the disposition uh, that contributes towards wisdom. And, and that, by the way, is almost always the case. If you look at, like, on average, how people are different from each other in their average tendencies those differences would be smaller than 
how much you are different from your typical average. You know, uh, in, in some ways, like it's not a surprise because the, uh, you operate with different levels of analysis. One is about the uh, inter-individual differences, typical tendencies of a person A versus person B. And those individual differences, inter-individual differences, don't necessarily have uh, much to say in terms of the inferences for the intra-individual differences. So how much you differ from one situation to the next. In fact, that's like, it's a classic uh, logical fallacy that even Aristotle was talking about. And in uh, statistics, we talk about it when we talk about ecological fallacies or Simpson's paradox and so on. Uh, so it's a known thing. It's just like we often forget about it. And then we are surprised why uh, the difference within the group, and in this case, the group is the individual, uh, is larger than the difference between groups. We kind of, for instance, I also study cultural differences. And in cultural differences, almost like a mantra, you study cultural differences, but then you end up saying, but by the way, keep in mind, dear reader, that the differences within the United States or within uh, the UK are much larger than the differences between the UK and the United States. And so the same thing applies to an individual. So the differences between person A and person B would be smaller than the differences of person A and person B uh, across different stations in their lives. Some uh, researchers would actually talk about age, gender, and culture as context. It's like your age is your context that you carry with you. Your culture is your context in which you grew up. Your gender is your, to some extent, your identity, how you identify yourself, how you've been socialized, what you, uh, and so on. And, uh, and then, of course, we look at, like, well, what is the role of context? Well, it's a very big role. Uh, you know, like depending on how you've been socialized, uh, you may or may not be more prone uh, to focus on perspective taking or recognize your humility. Uh, in our societies, especially now, uh, you have this tendency to try to pretend to be very confident about your answers. Like I feel like talked to a group of teachers once in Italy a few years ago. And I tried to communicate to them the value of intellectual humility and recognizing limits of your knowledge and it's part of wisdom, blah, blah, blah. But then they, a, a teacher raises her hand and she's like, but wait a second, our students are not doing that. And in fact, if they would do that on an exam and we have oral exams, then they would get a fail. They want to pretend like they're super confident because even, even if they fake it. And uh, and that's, I think, is a problem, right? Like uh, where... In many societies, we emphasize this confidence that we're supposed to project as leaders, supposed to project uh, as, I mean, as any hu normal human being. And you don't like somebody who is constantly uncertain. Of course, it's a matter of degree. But, but there are cultural differences in that. And so, for instance, uh, we did one study where we compared Japanese to Americans. And uh, we know that in Japan, people are, since uh, early age, uh, uh, cultivated to uh, take perspectives of others. Like you see it in elementary school textbooks where uh, they really cultivate these ideas of perspective taking, of being empathetic, being considerate of others, being considerate of others' opinions. Uh, maybe too much, some, somebody may say, a social critic may say. Uh, but then, in contrast to that, you have the American approach where you just focus on yourself and you think as yes, like the, the leader and the best and so on. And again, these are exaggerations, once again cultural differences, uh, there is a lot of variability in each of those countries, uh, probably more than just between Japan and the United States. But when you look at these basic responses then, and what, what are those implications? You get college students who then um, do 
these wisdom tasks where they are supposed to provide open-ended responses. And you see that the college kids from Japan or young adults from Japan uh, in general are more likely to spontaneously mention perspective taking when they think about an, uh, a dilemma that they never heard of before, a context that they never heard of before, as compared to American uh, counterparts. So you have a little bit of the effect of context in there. Gender, that one is a bit tricky. I would not, um, I'm not sure I would be able to uh, to tell you exactly what's going on. Depends on the culture, depends on the situation. We find to some extent in some studies that uh, if somebody talks, uh, if the conflict is with a person of the opposite gender, uh, then the person seems to be more likely to engage in perspective taking, intellectual humility, uh, consideration of diverse opinions than if the if the conflict is with a person of the same gender. So that's interesting, but that's like doesn't really talk about uh, your gender per se, right? Like so it seems like it's almost like an interactive effect. And uh, for age, um, there we have exactly this uh, type of. Uh, a weird brew of apples and oranges put together in, and, and, and cooking it for a while. Because if you do that, you end up finding that, uh, for instance, overall, there seems to be that older adults perform worse on some of these tasks than young and middle-aged adults. But there's like quite stability across the middle age. But then you look specifically at different tasks and you see that the majority of it is for self-report measures. And then... You take a step back and then you realize, but all the hey, this, wait a second. So this age differences are this really about age or different cohorts when people grew up in different cultures? Because it's not like that you track the same person over time. Those studies almost don't exist. Instead of that, you just take people who are young and old and compare them to each other. And once again, you may be confusing differences between groups with intra-individual change over time. And so I have yet have to see a good solid study that would look at individual change in age over time and wisdom. Instead of that, all studies, including my own studies um, are, uh, that concerned aging, are about uh, group differences. And that may be about aging, that may be about culture that people grew up in. You know, like in the 60s, people talked about uh, what is important and values in their lives, moral aspirations, and so on, uh, differently from maybe millennial generation or some weird combination of those two. So there, I'm not so sure. My best recommendation for wisdom nowadays is probably to some extent disengagement. Uh, and by that, I mean, turn off your social media, maybe delete social media from your phone. Uh, maybe just try to be mindful about it. And in some ways it's a form of self-distancing because we are constantly in this kind of immersed uh, state of being where you constantly like fed information, you don't have enough time to process it. Yeah, so disengaging, self-distancing, especially from social media. It's a challenging question, you know, uh, because uh, that's, of course, the one that people mostly care about uh, when they hear about wisdom. It's like you study wisdom. Oh, how do I, get, how do I become wiser? And uh, yeah, in reality, there's not, not that many ways that people have actually done this empirically. I mean, because you need like rigorous randomized control trial interventions in order to really test that. So far, uh, in my lab, we have done a few. And one tendency that seems to be helping is like when you sort of like self-distance, you engage in sort of exercises where 
you try to look at yourself from a third-person perspective or write in the third-person language repeatedly over time, then it has some kind of carryover effect. But um, those are just baby steps. And uh, in fact, uh, the effect of this kind of self-distancing intervention um, is uh, not such that you would like suddenly make a fool into a wise person. It's more like a really small incremental effect. The issue is uh, that uh, whenever you are in the heat of the moment, uh, it's harder to remind yourself in that moment what the stra- what the best strategies are. Even if you know what the best strategies are, if you're like so immersed in the situation that you really want to tear the world apart, whatever, because you're so angry, something like that, right? Uh, good luck reminding yourself, and now I need to be mindful. And now I need to self-distance. And now I just need to breathe. Like, you know, you need to, you need to train yourself in those moments and it's often very hard to do. Uh, so, and that's another sort of like frontier for both wisdom research, but also in general, emotion regulation research. Uh, how do you get to better regulation of yourself to better sort of like application of this cognitive, metacognitive tools in the heat of the moment? Yeah, so there is a number of different things that uh, would be interesting to explore from the perspective of wisdom science. One is like to tr- really clear up the mess about like different constructs that seem to be coming up uh, that become fashionable, uh, such as humility. Uh, there are other constructs such as consciousness, and all of them like tap into some of these components of wisdom, either big metacognitive process or just like the intellectual humility being part of the uh, of the wisdom construct so tr- try to really figure out the relationship and the common language uh, that can be used across uh, different subdisciplines in cognitive science i think would be a fascinating and very challenging task the other um, frontier for wisdom in my opinion, is to figure out if wisdom is uniquely human and if wisdom can be applied to uh, non-human agents such as uh, artificial intelligence. So, you know, like when we talk about artificial intelligence, we talk about uh, some kind of a rational, hyper-rational agent. Um, Some humans have the some of us have issues with that, right? Like, oh, the hyper-rational is the one without compassion, without the moral compass, the one that will uh, just uh, enslave us all and uh, create this totalitarian, we'll just be some kind of cells uh, in the matrix, or maybe we'll just be crushed uh, like uh, in the Terminator type of uh, uh, analogy. And uh, it's all interesting because it, it comes down to this path of uh, a rational AI. But is there a possibility of a wise AI? If you look at this kind of psychological model where it's on the one hand some kind of moral principles, um, almost like uh, Asimov's sort of like laws of robotics. Uh, And at the same time, you have this metacognitive process uh, that are kind of like human consciousness. Like, can AI simulate that um, and learn through that and uh, be potentially more appealing to humans. So that's another thing that I find fascinating, just to think about these ideas. Uh, Can they be a wise robot? Uh, Would we be more accepting of a wise robot? So I guess I would pick those two. And then, of course, there's a question of interventions and how can you improve wisdom in people's lives, especially during the time of the pandemic, during the time of uh, various societal crises that we are facing these days.
That's it for today's episode. Visit our website at journalentries.fireside.fm for more information about Igor Grossman, his work, and some of the resources mentioned in this episode.